Good morning. Everybody good this morning? Good. Well, I'm glad you're here. Uh, my name is Michael Page. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the lead pastor here at Connection Church Savannah. Um, is everybody good this morning? Everybody great? Happy to be here in church with a body of believers? Right? Good? Yeah. It's always good to celebrate whenever we're able to come together as a body of Christ. Brothers and sisters who worship Jesus, who, who are celebrating the, the, the birth, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, the looking forward to what's to come and, and Christ coming back for his church. That's why we're here, right? We're here to celebrate. We're here to honor one another, and we're here to honor Jesus most of all this morning. And so, if, like I said, it's your first time here this morning, my heart will be that you would feel welcome. My heart will be that you would feel at home, and my heart would be that you would just experience Christ in a way um, that you may not be used to experiencing. This morning, um, our heart is that you would be connected to a growing relationship with Jesus, um, whether you're here for uh, five minutes or five years. We're not that old yet, but we will get there. Um, so our heart is that you would be connected to Jesus and be able to take next steps of faith, seeing your faith grow, mature, and seeing our body become more unified as we become more and more like Christ. And so today, we're in week five of a series called Re-Engage, um, where we're talking about, um, we're talking about re-engaging with Christ, because what, what's happened over the last year and a half, um, we've seen people across the world, um, we've seen people disengage from church. We've seen people disengage engage from their relationship with Jesus. We've seen people disengage with community, disengage um, ultimately with the mission of God. Um, whether it be from just uh, just the immature of their faith, or maybe it's been fear of just the pandemic, or just social issues, or the world, the, the persecution that's going on, whatever it may be. There's so many choices to choose from of why you're going to disengage from your faith this year. And what we've seen, that's what we've looked at. So we're we're talking about re-engaging with Christ. And what I've seen firsthand is there's this sifting. That's happening in the church. There's this sifting that's happening in the church where God is testing the church. God is testing believers and where your faith really lies. Like, well, what are you going to put your faith in when the foundations of your life start shaking? When the foundations of what you're living for starts to move, are the are you propping your life up on idols that are going to fall in those moments? Or are you propping your life up on Jesus, who is the solid foundation for our lives? And so that's why we're doing this series, because what we're seeing is this, our faith has been exposed, but guys, this is nothing new. It's just easier to see now, right? And so as a body of Christ, we've, we've been sent. At the door, we have this thing that says, you've been sent. So every time you walk out of these doors, our prayer is that you would know that as a, as a Christian, as someone who says, I'm a born-again believer in Christ, full of the Holy Spirit, sent out with the gospel, if that's who you say you are, you've been sent on a mission of God. And so we've been sent. We've been saved out of this world. We've been set apart, full of the Holy Spirit, not to walk right back into the world and live like the world tells us to live. We've been called to live set apart. We've been adopted into a kingdom with a king. His name's Jesus. And he's loved you and me so much that he died for us. And we're called to live for him. And this morning, I believe the reason why it's so easy for a person to disengage with the body of Christ or to disengage with Jesus or to disengage just with life in general is we've fallen for the deception that our church experience is reserved for church meeting times. Instead of an identity, who we've become in Christ. Like, so it's easy for me to show up on a Sunday or show up during the week to a connect group and then just check out the rest of the days. 
as a Christian. That's not what we're called to do. Many of us, and this is where I got convicted this week as I was thinking and praying, many of us have attended church for years, but have never been a part of the church. Does that make sense? We've attended church for a long time, but we've never been engaged with the workings of a biblical church. And some of you are like, well, I just got to say, well, good for you. Sometimes I'm like, I got saved when I was eight years old. Sometimes I was like, God, man, I just, I feel like if I was saved a little bit later, I would appreciate this more. But God's like, no, listen, it's important that we understand we're called to fan the flames of our faith in brothers and sisters. The church is a Greek word. It's translated into the, from the Greek word ekklesia. We talk about this all the time, which is defined as an assembly of called out people. An assembly of called out people. So what we see in scripture is the church is a people. The church is a people. And it's ironic that, that when you ask people what church they attend, they usually point to a building, right? They usually point to, oh, I go to Connection Church, Savannah over there in Garden City, or I go to First Baptist Church over there, over here, or I go over here, or I go over here. That's not what this is. Like in, in Romans chapter 16, verse 5, Paul refers to the church. He says, greet the church that is in your house. So I'm like, man, that's crazy. Like Paul refers to the church that was meeting in someone's house, not a building, not a church building, but a gathering of believers. And that's what we have to start looking at the church is we're called to bring each other together around the name of Jesus. And our hope that is in this year of maturity that we're in, we're praying that each one of us would grow in our faith, taking next steps, unified steps of faith together towards becoming more unified around the mission of God and maturing in how we respond to the gospel and how we respond to God, because if I'm picking up this word every day, if I'm reading it, and it's not changing my life, if I'm not taking steps based off of what I'm reading, I'm not doing anything except getting head knowledge. And I say this all the time, but knowledge without application is useless. And it's honestly a curse because it will create this apathy in you that will make you useless in the kingdom of God. My heart today is that you would not do that. So over the past four weeks, we've been studying the four cultures of our church. And saying that if we're growing in these four cultures as a church, we're going to mature as a church in, in, in community and evangelism and, and generosity and serving. Those four areas, there's many more, but those four things we see in Acts chapter 2, the church doing as they were b- being birthed. So we believe if you're doing these four things in your life, these things are growing in your life, and you are going to be a growing believer. If a church is growing in these areas, you're going to be a growing church. And so that's our heart today. So today's topic is going to be on generosity. And so most of you are like, what's my first time here? The pastor is talking about money. It's not about that. But welcome to church. Glad you're here. Come back next week and uh, we'll talk about a different topic. But today we're going to talk about generosity. And so let me pray for you and we're going to jump right in. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus. God, I pray that you would just allow us to experience your presence in this place this morning. God, let um, the the distractions of this world, God, the the idols that we prop up, God, fall at your feet this morning. God, I pray for a, a body of mature believers who are passionate after your word and passionate after your mission, God. Lord, we lay ourselves at your feet, God, and just surrender to your will, to your plan, Lord. I pray for marriages in this room, that you would strengthen them. I pray for hearts in this room, God, are just dealing with hurt and fear and pain. I pray, God, that you would just heal them in Jesus' name. Lord, be with us as we dive into your word. Bless the hearer. God, bless me as I preach. I pray that you would hide me behind your cross, behind your word. God, that you you would make much of yourself. God, that you would just be glorified in everything that's said and done in this place this morning. 
Lord, we love you. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you want to turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, I want to just kind of share some things with you. Um, I, I was I reminded of a movie that I saw um, as, a, as a child that I was probably scarred for life, honestly, because it's, it's, I mean, have you ever seen Saving Private Ryan before anybody? So I saw it as a young child. I probably should never have watched that whenever I was young. I was like, man, that's, that's kind of graphic, Mom. Why'd you let me watch that, right? And so I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about that scene where they open up the gate. And everybody on the boat gets shot. I'm just like, what is happening? Well, why did you sign up to do this? Barely getting into battle and you're shot. And what's going on? What would cause someone to jump on that boat? What would cause a band of brothers? What would cause a band of people, an army, people who are together around a mission? Who would call, what would cause those types of people to gather together with the notion that they may not make it out alive? They probably won't make it off of that beach. What gathered those people together? What brought them together? It was a common mission of a common experience, and it was a, it was a commonality. It was a community of believers or, or people who, who believed something so much that they were willing to lay their life down. So think about that for a second. I thought about that in relationship to the church. What would it take for a body of believers to believe the gospel so intimately and so deeply that they were willing to lay their life down at the feet of Jesus and say, God, make much of yourself through my life and not me. God, I'm willing to die for this mission. I'm willing to love my brothers and sisters to the point where I'm willing to get on that boat. I'm willing to jump in all in with this mission that you placed us on to make disciples of all nations. I'm willing to lock arms with my brother and sister. I'm willing to heal relationships. I'm willing to get over myself. I'm willing to lock arms with one another. I'm willing to jump ahead and I'm willing to step ahead. And I'm willing to march together with my brothers and sisters in Christ to see your kingdom built here. What's it going to take for that to happen? It's going to take us to see Christ for who he truly is and see us for who we really are. Last week, Jamin, probably one of the, uh, the most well-dressed pastors that ever preached from this stage, um, he, he spoke last week on evangelism. He talked about Isaiah chapter 6, and in our connect group this week, we talked about how to have an experience with Christ, you have to see God for who he is. And in that moment, you have a woe is me moment. Here's a holy God, woe is me, I'm nothing before him. God, what am I to do? And he touches his lips, and he's made clean. And you see in Isaiah chapter 53 where Jesus is offered as a sacrifice, you see this same God offered as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And so I see the, I see a woe is me moment, and I see Christ on the cross, and I see my sin somewhere in the middle, and I see what Christ has done for me, and that makes me on mission for Christ. That's what motivates me to make disciples. That's what motivates me to love this church the way that I love this church. That's what motivates me to, to try to, to create unity and try to create momentum to see the kingdom reached in this place, to see something that I see in Scripture come to reality in this place. And I pray that's our heart this morning. And so that's the place I want to start this morning, the motivation of our hearts. And so it connects and what we believe is the gospel, the gospel, what I just told you about, creates generous people. When I see the riches of heaven, when I see God on this throne coming out of heaven, taking the form of a slave, what it says in Philippians chapter 2, dying on a cross in my place, I'm, I, I'm blown away by the generosity of God, Right? I'm blown away by how generous he is with the, his resources, giving a bankrupting heaven to come after me. But before we get going, I want to just, I want to settle something in our heart. If you're a note taker, write these things down. 
I want to settle some things this morning in our heart. Generosity is not something that God wants from you. Generosity is something that God wants for you. Generosity is not something that God wants from you. It's something that God wants for you. Because the mission of God, the thing that I just told you, but we're going to talk about this in a second again, but Genesis 3 to Revelation chapter 20, we see the Bible being a, a big rescue mission. From Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, God is making a way back to him. Praise Jesus, right? Yeah. We shouldn't talk about why is Jesus the only way. We should talk about why is there even a way, right? And our heart is, but that's, that's a, and so God's vision is worth our investment. Can, can we agree with that? God's vision is worth our investment into the kingdom. And so I, but I believe the problem for most of us in this room is sometimes we have a vision problem, right? We have a vision problem in how we're seeing, how we're looking at life. And so what happens is the way that we see things in life or in our faith is controlled by the lens that we've been trained to look through. And we have to get this right or we're going to miss it. And so I started thinking and praying, there's two types of lenses I think we're tempted to look through or we have to be training ourselves to look through. And the first one is the moral lens. The first one is the moral lens of our faith. A moral lens is I do these things. I can, I'm a good boy. I, I mind my manners and I, I live for Jesus. And then I don't do these things. I don't lie, cheat, steal, kill, all these things. And then God's going to love me. Right? Who's been tempted to live that way? Right? I'm going to do this and I'm going to get this. Right? I'm good here, so God's going to bless me and love me. I may have sinned. I'm going to just go back here. I'm going to, I'm going to just kind of pray a little bit, and then I'm going to, God's going to love me after a few days. We'll be back, back together, right? No, God saved me, but I need to live this way to please God. Good deeds equals heaven, right? Like I said, if you've grown up in a church and you've experienced religion in any sort of way, it's really easy to fit into this mold, but this is not Christianity. I'm not sure what religion that is, but that's not Christianity. Maybe Judaism, maybe. I don't know. But that's not Christianity. It's not that God doesn't have a moral vision for his people because he does. But you can't live for Jesus without Jesus. And so remember, we talked back in our Revelation series in Ephesus, what happened? They lost their first love. They were doing all these things right with the wrong heart. And they lost the vision of Jesus. And so... If this is how you approach your faith, at best, what's going to happen is you're going to be self-righteous, and at worst, you're going to fail, and you're going to pretend not to fail, and you'll hide your struggles and live in shame. Can anybody relate to that? I've been there. Yeah. Always struggling with shame or self-righteousness, and that's a dangerous teeter-totter to get back and forth on. And our heart today is that we would see there's another way we're called to live. It's called, we're called to live through the redemptive lens. The redemptive land. God has made a way for us through Jesus. God has saved us through his sin and through our, from our sin and from our death. The Holy Spirit has filled us and is transforming us, making us new. Everything I do in my life is flowing from my relationship with Jesus, not for a relationship with Jesus. But the problem, if you're like me, in the westernized Christianity is we ask God for instructions. God, tell me what to do, and then I'll do it, and then I'll get my reward, Right? Tell me how to live. Tell me how I'm supposed to live, and then I'll do it, and then we can be good. But God wants to give us a relationship. God doesn't want to give you a list of things to do. He wants to give you a relationship. And what happens is humanity has always struggled with exchanging this incredible relationship for a religion to adhere to instead of a Savior to follow and to love. And so this morning, we're called to be with him, not just do life for him. 
And so when the things that we do for God overflows from a position of being loved by God, not so that we can earn his love. So these are the lens that we're tempted to live in, guys. And I want to tell you this morning that everybody in this room nods at this, right? You're right. It's not the moral lens. It's the redemptive lens. But every single person struggles to live like this. We all do. It flows from love, not for love. And as we talk about this topic of generosity, grace has to be the place that we've got to start. Grace has to be the place that we have to start. So my question for you today, I pray that you would hear this. Does your generosity, the way that you give, your time, your money, your talents, your energy, your, all the things that you give towards the kingdom of God, does the, your generosity, does it reflect the generosity of the gospel? God emptying himself for mankind. Or does it reflect an attempt to adhere to some sort of religious requirement? Does it reflect to the world God's generosity in the gospel? Or does it reflect your adherence to a 10% tithe? If you think through that, it's, it's hard. Because remember, generosity is not something that God wants from you. Remember? Generosity is not something that God wants from you, but something that God wants for you. Because guess what? I'm not sure if you know this or not this morning, but the God that you follow doesn't have needs. Can, can we just affirm that this morning? God's not, God doesn't have needs. God's not sitting in heaven saying, there's so much in this world that I want to do, but I just can't afford it. If only those people at Connection Church would just give me some more of their time, their treasure and talents, and then I could do the work that I'd planned to do from the beginning of time, and the world would know me and be blessed. That's not what God's doing, right? God, God has no, he has no needs. He has nothing. He doesn't need your time, your treasure, and his talent, your talents. But he uses your gifts as a means to work in our life and in the world, but he doesn't have needs. It's something that he wants for us. And so we don't give to give back to God. We don't give to get back from God. That's what, that's what we call a prosperity gospel, and that is an evil gospel. It's, if that's why you give, guess what? If you're giving to get back something, you're not giving to God. You're giving to yourself. Does that make sense? And it's important that we see that because Scripture does say that God will multiply our resources when we give, but he does that so that we can give more to his kingdom, more to the mission, more to people in need. So our generosity... Our generosity is a response to what God has done through the gospel. And so he deserves our first and our best. And he calls us to use our resources for the world, just like Jesus used his resources for us. Do you see that? So Jesus used the resources of heaven to save us. So we're called to use our resources to, to, to see the other people saved, restored, renewed, and, and found. So remember, the gospel creates generous people. When you come face-to-face -face with the gospel, it creates a generosity in you. And so why I believe this is because through the lens, through the gospel, God has invited us, me and you, into his story. From Genesis to Revelation, we find this incredible rescue, redemption story. And at the center of all of this, we see God has a plan to see his glory and his love reach the ends of the earth. 
Starting in 2018, I started saying, guys, we're called to reach the nations. We're called to reach the unreached in our community and across the world. We're called to see his gospel go forward. But what happens? Distraction, division, distraction, division, selfishness, ambition, deceitfulness. All these things that we call sin in our world comes into the church and it starts to, starts to mutate and starts to, starts to multiply instead of gospel culture being multiplied and cultivated. And we start seeing the church become a place of complacency instead of a place of multiplication, growth, and unity. And so we start seeing the church, not ours, not, I'm not naming a church, we're just saying the church in general becomes inward focused instead of outward focused. And we're called to be outward focused on mission for God to see his name made famous among the nations. And I want to tell you this morning, if you're a Christian in this place, if you're born again, and you see that you've been created with a purpose, and that purpose is to join God in this mission that we see in Scripture of seeing the lost saved, the broken restored, the sick and lame healed, and the world made new, you begin to live very differently, right? Because you're called out by God. Remember, God's mission is worth our investment. And so does your generosity reflect the gospel, the emptying of yourself for the sake of other people, for the sake of the gospel reaching the nations? As I was studying this week, I came across some statistics in the Bible. Um, I was reading through, I was just kind of, I was kind of like just curious about how many times that God, or how many times the writers of the Bible talk about different things. And uh, I learned that in the Bible, there are 200 verses on the topic of prayer. 200 verses on the topic of prayer. Um, I looked a little further, a little deeper, and there was 250 verses on the topic of faith. If you go in the Bible and you count the verses, there's 250. There's a Bible software that I use. I didn't literally count every single word in the Bible, okay? So if it's all five couple based on translations, I, I'm going to give you that disclaimer now. But when you talk about stewardship in the Bible, what you do with your time, treasure, and talents, how you steward your life, there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible. I was like, Lord, are you trying to tell us something? So I dug a little deeper. One out of every 10 verses in the New Testament deals with money. Let's think through that a little bit. I'm like, what? That don't make sense. It's true. Go look it up. 16 of the 38 parables deal with money. 25% of Jesus' teaching deal with financial matters. So I'm like, that's like what, one in four sermons are on money? Is that, I'm not a good math person, but like thinking about that, think of every four weeks we had a sermon on money. These seats would be empty, bro. Like nobody be coming to church and already talk about money. Up there. Right. But if you, but you like, I would listen to Jesus though, right? No, he talked about what we do with our life more than anybody else. And so I'm sitting here looking at this. Why is this the case? This is, makes no sense to my, my finite brain. And, and Jesus didn't talk about money because he needed money. Jesus didn't talk about how we steward our resources because we, he needed some money. If you look at these, these, these statistics, you can go verify them for yourself, but it's amazing to see that he talked about money because he knew that what we do with our resources and how we think about our resources is the greatest indicator to where our heart truly belongs. You see that? Jesus always goes after the heart. He goes after the heart and not the action. Why did Jesus talk about the rich young ruler? He comes to him and says, hey, basically, I've followed all the Ten Commandments. I've done all these things. I've done, I've, what must it take for me to have eternal life? Jesus, what does it say in Scripture? Saw his heart. And in his heart, he was rich. And he knew that money had his heart. And so Jesus said, go sell all your belongings and follow me. And the man walks away, what? Sad, because he knew he couldn't do it. 
because his heart was tied to this world in that way. Jesus always goes after the heart and not the action because the fruit of a changed heart is always actional. The fruit of a changed heart is always actional. Do you agree with that? You remember the moment you were saved and whenever God changes your heart, your life starts being different. Those of you here this morning that have never seen that before, maybe there's a question. Have I been saved? Has the Holy Spirit really come, to my, come in my life and changed my life, changed my heart? So the best indicator of where you're really at, where your heart really is, is what you're doing with your resources, your time, your treasure, your talents. Because Jesus, let me tell you, Jesus teaches on generosity not to get money out of your pocket, but to get idols out of your heart. So Jesus teaches on generosity, not to get money out of your wallet, but to get the idols out of your heart. Who struggles with being an idol worshiper in this place? Every single person in this room does. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said the human heart is an idol factory. We are, fu- we are functioning idol addicts. We, we worship everything that brings us comfort, everything that brings us pleasure. We tend to worship it. But God is wanting to kill those idols in our hearts so he can be the Lord of our life. And the main idea today in this passage we're going to be looking at in Matthew chapter 6, the main idea is found in verse 24. We're going to start there. If everybody's there, are you good? Everybody? Okay. All right. So it'll be verse 24. It says, no one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. So what we see in this chapter is Jesus is really going after this idea of bondage to an idol, bondage to money, and he shows us how to get free from it. Who would like to be free from all idol worship? All of us this morning. There's, there's idols in our heart that we don't even know are there. Just because of where you live in America, you have things in your life that you don't even realize that you're worshiping. That we're called to lay before God. God, show me the ways of my life. God, show me the error of my ways. God, point these things out to me. We're going to pray like, like David does in the Psalms. God, show me my heart. God, show me my, the things in my life that you want me to surrender to you, Lord. Those are the prayers that we're called to pray. And he wants us to be free from these things. And so some kind of some filtering questions for you this morning is this, is the two questions I kind of want us to wrestle with is what gets the first and the best of your time, treasure, and talent? What gets the first and the best of your time, treasure, and talent? Is it God? Is it his mission? Or is it you and your comfort? And let me tell you, these questions I'm asking to myself as well. Because no one is exempt from this type of living as a Christ follower. Are we, are we living for self? Are we living for God and his mission? What is the one thing? So this is the, this is the second question. What is the one thing that drives everything else in your life? Your time, your treasure, and your talent. What is the one thing? Is it God? Is it his mission? Or is it security? Is it fear? Is it pleasure? Is it comfort? It's what kingdom are you living for? You can say, hey, I'm a Christian all day long, right? But I can also tell you that I'm a horse all day long, and it's not true, right? You can say you're a Christian all day long, but it's the fruit of your life that's going to tell the story. And so this morning, that's it. What, where are you putting your trust? And so let's start back at the beginning of this, of this passage in chapter 6, verse 19. And we see Jesus 
talking in the Sermon on the Mount and where Jesus is trying to change culture. In the very first part of the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? He says, you've heard it said, blank. You've heard it said, and he goes through all these different topics of discussion. But then he says, but I tell you this. And so he sees these people who have given their life to following the law. They've added laws and they've added things, added all these things. But he's saying, you've heard it said, blank. But I'm going to tell you this. I'm giving you a new way to live, a new way to mold your life around. Jesus is trying to change their heart. And so this is what he says in verse 19. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. And so he starts out with this word, don't. Who kind of feels as you're reading this as a child, as an adult, as whatever, as you're growing up, when you hear this, you kind of associate storing up treasures as negative. Who, who else is in that boat? Uh, storing up treasures, bad, right? Giving everything you have, good, right? Who's, uh, me, okay? So we're, we're looking at this, it says don't, and I think what's happened is, is our culture, we focused on the word don't, kind of like a buzzer where don't touch that red button, right? Don't do this. And I think we focus on that and we get distracted into thinking negatively about our resources, God's blessed me, so I need to feel kind of bad about that. God's blessed me with finances. God's blessed me with time. God's blessed me with talent. So I need to feel kind of bad about that. I don't need to tell anybody about these things. I don't need people to see these things. But in the next verse, Jesus starts off with what? What does he say? But store up. He says, don't store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. So it's a positive thing. So I'm saying, let's reorient our hearts to what Jesus is saying. Store up treasures for yourself. Some of y'all feel dirty after I said that, right? I'm going to say it again. Store up treasures for yourself. So the Bible says, store up treasures for yourself in heaven. That feels differently. But this is a positive thing. He wants us to store up treasures, but he wants us to do it in the right way. The right way. Well, how is that? Well, you look throughout Scripture. We see this investment principle and eternal things play out in a very common way throughout Scripture. Giving God our first and our best, we see Cain and Abel. The very first issue of this, we see one gave their first and their best, and we see the other give just good enough. The leftovers. I'm giving God the leftovers. I'm, I'm, this, one, this brother gave the first and the best, and this person, this brother gave his leftovers, and this person became jealous because God was blessing him, so he ends up killing his brother. So we see sin compounding on each other. Then we see King David. King David, we see in the, we see in the Old Testament in Psalms, we see in places he wasn't honoring God with his time. It says while the other kings were off to war, David was lounging in his palace. And he sees Bathsheba taking a bath, commits adultery, commits murder, lies after lie. All these things compound to one another. All because he wasn't honoring God with his time. That was the root. He wasn't honoring God with his time. And so it led to sin, and it led to murder, and it led to a, a compilation of just sin after sin. And so, guys, giving God our first and our best, what it does is it strengthens our faith, and it focuses our attention on God's eternal purposes that we see in Scripture, and it turns us away from the world, right? The don't here is trying to save us from our anxiety. Who struggles with anxiety? All of us, maybe some? Yeah, we, it, God is trying to take us away from that anxiety and our desire to be God. We have a desire to control things. 
right? We, we, are, we have a lot of control freaks in the room this morning, right? I want to control my finances. I want to control my relationships. I want to control my circumstances so that I can feel safe and secure. If God calls me overseas, I'm probably not going to listen to that. I'm probably going to say that was just the devil trying to lead me away. I mean, you know, we try to control these things where God has told you to release these things and give me the first and the best of your time, treasure, and talent so that I can use them to see the world reach with the gospel. He says, don't store up in such a way that you feel like you have to control it. He's reminding you that you have less control than you think you do. The control that you hold on to right now is an illusion. It's not real. We don't control anything. And so our time, our treasure, and our talents are things that we steward, not things that we own. Jesus is saying, invest these things in the right places and watch what I do. Okay? You see that? Invest these things, your time, treasure, and talent. Invest these things in the right places and watch what I do. I have a little illustration that I should have been prepared for, but guys, this is the first thing that, this is the first time that I ever did this, okay? I didn't do this at home. I didn't do this before I came to church, and Eric just vacuumed the floor, and this is about to get bad, and he's going to be mad at me. Um, so it's, it is what it is. I'll vacuum. So, so we see here, this is our life, Right? And God asks us to give the first and the best of our time, our treasure, and our talent. What happens sometimes is we, we point to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament tithe. But in the New Testament, we don't see God really affirming the tithe or even really talking about the tithe. We see God saying in, in places like 2 Corinthians where he says, give what God's placed on your heart, not out of compulsion, but do it with a loving heart. So God may tell you to give 10% of your time, treasure, and talent. God may tell you to give 75%. I don't know what God's going to tell you, but what happens in the church is we get mad on people when pastors start doing illustrations like this because we start talking about some personal things, right? And so maybe God says, you know, give me, I don't know if it's 10%, but it kind of looks like it, right? Give me 10% of your time, treasure, and talent. And then we get so mad that God's taking anything from us. It's like, God, how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to do these things? And so we give God a little bit here. We give God a little bit here. We give God a little bit here. We give God, if enough, we give maybe not even that much to the nations, right? But God, how am I supposed to pay my mortgage? How am I supposed to live my life? How am I supposed to take my wife on dates and, and have time for myself? God, you took 10%. We talk about 10% like 90 is not a lot, right? And so I, I think through that, I'm like, what's happening here? So, but what if God asks you to do more? What if God asks you to do more and more and more? And what happens is we see, we see stories like um, John Wesley over in, in England where he said that, you know, God was talking to him in his prayer life and he, was, he, he started making more money. And God said, I want you to live off of what you've always lived off of. And by the time, he, by the time he, his life was ended, he, had, he was living off very meager wages. He was giving away three or four times what he made every year. And, or excuse me, what he was living off of every year. What I see, guys, is what God is calling us to do. We see this in Micah. Micah says that test me in this. Bring your tithe into the storehouse and see if I won't make your barns overflow. Guys, we, 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 God gives us resources so that we pour out and we act like he doesn't have a full house to give us what we need. We think we have to control this 
And we forget that God has given us all the resources in heaven to do the work that he's called us to do. And so if we're pouring out everything and we're doing all these things to see the kingdom come of discipleship, of seeing, of seeing you know, the, the community reach, seeing um, nations reach, seeing churches planted, we see God just filling us back up. God's going to give us everything we need when we need it so we can pour out more. We can give more to what God has called us to do. We should never see a missionary in need because we should never see a church planner in need because God's blessed us to give, not to hoard. And some of you are like, man, you're stepping on my toes. It's okay. This is the concept of Scripture. And what I'm saying this morning, and we're going to do this again in a second, but my heart today is that we would see that, you know, what we're looking at is if you really believe what Jesus says about eternity, isn't this just common sense? That I'm going to give God everything. I'm going to assume that God wants every area of my life, every sin that I have, every amount of minutes of my day, and I'm going to give him what he, anything he asks, I'm going to do. God's not going to leave you. God's not going to leave you stranded. God is, the, God is going to protect you, and he's going to take care of you. It may not look like earthly protection like you have in your mind, but God's going to protect you and guide you and lead you. Most financial advisors that you go to will tell you that you are thinking about your resources when you're trying to invest your resources. Don't think 30 days ahead. Think 30 years. Think 30 years ahead. But Jesus is saying we should think 30 million years ahead, right? Invest with a 30 million year plan in mind. But we have a hard time sometimes with our thought processes because we can't get our hands off of our, 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 our time, treasure, and talent because we want to control it because we only have 70 years to live, right? 70, 80 years. But God has called us to think big. Verse 21, what does it say? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where you put most of your treasure is where your heart will belong. And so what happens is we see the church struggling sometimes to survive, not necessarily this church, but just in general. We see churches dying. We see churches kind of going to the wayside. We see foreign missions. Actually, the budget for foreign missions most days is kind of like this. You kind of have a you kind of have a little bit a little bit to go off of. So some of the most unreached places in the world gets pennies, and we send most of our people to places that are already reached. It's what we see if the majority of your treasure is here on earth, that's where your heart will be. And if it's here to see people discipled and raised up, if it's to see. If it's to see churches planted who are making disciple-making disciples, if it's to see your communities reached, if it's to see the nations reached, you're going to start seeing your life change because you're going to start seeing what you care about in your life is going to change. It doesn't matter if you have the nicest or most, the best things. It's going to matter what you're giving your life to. When you walk into heaven and you've given, you've given everything to see Jesus come alive in this community, in this world, you're going to see things change. Your perspective change. C.S. Lewis said, wealth has a way of knitting a man's heart to this world. Wealth has a way of knitting a man's heart to this world. You can all relate to that, I promise. Because what, do, what you do with your resources will always reveal three things in your life. It will always reveal three things in your life. The first thing is what you love the most, what you most love. What you most love is what you're going to see, what it's going to reveal to you. The next thing is what you trust in most. What you trust in most. And then the last thing is what kingdom you're living for. And if we're not putting our time, our treasure, and our talent where our mouth is, then maybe our heart isn't where we say it is. 
And that's not, that's, that's hard words, but it's truth, guys. And God has created us to make an eternal impact as a church, as a believer. So we should use what we've been blessed with to accomplish his purposes and not our purposes until his purposes become my purposes, right? And that's the heart we're seeing with today. And so an identifying characteristic of a Christian is they should be incredibly generous. That we, we believe the gospel creates generous people. And so how, how we give should amaze the world, right? There, there's people in churches that are not even believers. They just go to church and they give 10%. Right? They give 10% here and there. They, they serve or, or, they, or they, you know, they, they give their talents on a Sunday. They may not even know Jesus. But someone who is a Christian, someone who knows Christ, should have a power inside of them that we call the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus living inside of them that enables them to do things that are not human. They, they give, it gives them characteristics in their life that aren't normal for everyday people. And so what I see is it's not that we're a little bit more generous or we're a little bit more kinder because Jesus died on the cross. We're a little bit more nicer because Jesus would be nice. You know, we wear the, what would Jesus do? Bracelets to remind me not to hit people or cuss at people, right? You know, all these things. And now we got that he would love first because, you know, okay, he would love first. Let me not get mad at this person in their drive-thru, right? No, listen, God has called us to be a new people because the Holy Spirit has filled us up. And as followers of Jesus, we belong to a completely different kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we have a king, not a president. We have a king to follow. So my question is, does our standard of giving to the world, to say to the world that our love for Jesus is what motivates everything else in our life? Does it look different? Do we live lives that make sense if eternity is not real? Guys, our generosity should scream, I am living for an eternal kingdom, and I'm invested in the plans and the purposes of my Savior. And I want to tell you this morning, if you're a member of this church, if you're heart and soul at Connection, and you struggle with giving or your time of giving uh, treasure or giving talent to this place, my prayer is that you would go to another church where you feel comfortable and you trust people because I know that this concept of generosity is more important than the membership of where you go to church at. But I pray that we would have a culture of trust that knows that these are the things we're going after to see people raised up and sent out. Because our generosity is to scream, I'm living for an eternal kingdom. I'm invested in the plans of my Savior. Let's read verse 22. Since the eye is the lamp of the body, if, you, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? And so at first, at first glance, it would, it would kind of be easy to assume that this has nothing to do with generosity, but it does. <clears throat> this is referring to spiritual sight. This is referring to spiritual sight. So, for example, <clears throat> the Pharisees who would have been listening to Jesus had spiritual eyes that were diseased. They, they were coveting money, they were coveting wealth, and they were living in spiritual darkness. They were slaves to their own greed. And so in the same way, when the, when the way you look at the resources that God has blessed you with becomes distorted, it affects every area of your life. When you start to see your time, your treasure, and your talents as ways to bring you security, as a way to bring you happiness, you begin to make a lot of bad decisions. You do. I do. We do. You begin to give God leftovers. But when you see your resources 
properly, you begin to see yourself as a steward instead of an owner. And what this does, this concept begins to guard your heart from greed. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Everywhere in the New Testament where greed is mentioned, if you go look, it says that it's idolatry. Greed is idolatry. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say this about anything else. He doesn't say, be on guard against adultery. Be on guard against dishonesty or lying. Why not? Well, I mean, because when you're committing adultery, you know it, right? You don't, you don't suddenly look up and say, wait a minute, you're not my wife, right? It's not something that you're like, it sneaks up on you, right? It's not something that you're like, whoa, I, this, this one got me, right? This, one, this snuck up on me here. That's not what he's, no, greed hides itself, Greed blinds you in a way that other sins don't. And this is why he highlights this in verse 24. What does he say? No one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Serve here literally means you depend on it for security. It literally means you belong to it. It means it takes care of you so you have to obey its commands. Right? I, I have to go to work to make money to survive. It begins to rule your life. I have to do this to do this because if you don't do what it demands, it'll stop taking care of you. It becomes idolatry. Money here can be translated into mammon. In a lot of translations, the ESV, King James, I think, says mammon. And while this word does mean money, it has a deeper meaning. There's a deeper spiritual reality at play when it comes to mammon. Jesus is warning us here that, that you are being shaped by the world that you live in in ways that you are unaware of. You're being shaped in ways that you're unaware of. Jesus is saying, watch your wallet because greed is tricky and sneaky. If you're left alone, you'll build bigger barns and storage bins. You'll try to build a better world. You'll try to, you'll try to build things in your life so that you don't need God and you'll be the one, you'll be your own savior if you don't watch out. He's saying, watch your wallet or you'll abandon, you'll abandon me and think that you can do better. And some of you may not be taking this seriously, but this is the scripture. I'm telling you this morning, this is a hard message for me to preach, much less live out. I can promise you, no pastor wants to get up here and talk about generosity. But I'm telling you this morning, he's saying you won't serve money and me. You'll serve money or me. And that's what we need to see this morning. So listen, it's not a sin to enjoy blessings that God's poured out on you. Second Timothy, Paul talks to Timothy about God's blessed you with these things to enjoy. But these things make terrible gods. You weren't meant to be owned by enjoyment. You were meant to enjoy God and live our life on his purposes, leveraging everything, our time, treasure, and talent laid out before him, surrendered to his plans and his mission on earth. But when it comes to our treasures, everyone in this room fits into three categories, I believe. We have spenders. Who's a spender in the room? I am a spender, Right? Got two of us, start a support group. Here we go. For this purpose, for this person, money is the key to happiness, right? Money is the key to happiness. So they spend the money, they take the trip. Their goal is to maximize enjoyment in this life, in this moment, right? No amens, just me and one more person. Y'all just don't want to admit it, right? 
And then we have the saver. Who's the saver? Right, yeah, we got a lot of savers. I'll get to y'all in a second. Here, a savior, a saver is someone in contrast who thinks that money's greatest value is providing security for tomorrow, right? They, they limit spending, focus instead on increasing wealth, accumulation over time. But I want to tell you something right now. These two types of people always marry each other, right? Right? Okay, so these two types of people, right, yeah, that's the first amen we get all day, right? These two types of people usually marry each other, and this is the funny part. They both think the other person has a problem with money, right? Right? And you spend too much. Well, you save too much. You're just, you're raining on my parade. I just want to have fun. Well, you just say, you save too much, and we can't never do anything. I can barely get a frozen pizza, right? And so it's like, what's happening? And, but let me tell you, I want to give you some bad news. Both serve money. Do you see that? Both serve money. They look at money to provide something absolutely essential for life. But there's a third type of person. It's the steward. The steward. This is the person who looks at God as their primary source of fulfillment and security. Right? This is the person that looks to God for their primary source of fulfillment and security. They hold their resources loosely like this. With all of it surrendered to God, because they don't see money as the primary key to happiness or security, because why? Because God's in charge. God gave it to me. I'm going to give it back to him. 10%? No, all of it. I'm giving it all back to God, and God can give me what he wants me to have. I'm going to hold it loosely. And a lot of us in this room may be prideful and say, that's me, that's me. But is it? Let's think about it. Let's think about it this morning. God is in charge. And then Jesus says this in chapter, chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore, because of all this, I tell you, don't worry about your life. Who worries about their life? Okay, yeah, a lot of us on this side, these people, that after service, we'll pray for these people, okay? So we worry about our life. What you will eat or what you will drink or what about your body, what you will wear, isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds. It's like, Jesus, why are you talking about birds right now? What's happening? <laughs> Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather in the barns, yet your, your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the fields grow. They don't labor or spin, thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. And so guys, these two analogies, they correspond to the two types of people, the two types of money worshipers that we just talked about. The birds analogy is directed at the saviors. Those people who see money as security. We don't, if we don't have enough in the bank, we don't have enough for a rainy day. We won't have enough to leave our kids when they get older, guys. Let your kids work for their own money. I'm sorry. That's bad. Savannah, uh, sorry. Je Jesus says to them, look at the birds. Look at the birds. Look at the birds. They don't save, and yet what does God do? He supplies all their what? Their needs. Sometimes we get our needs and our wants mixed up, don't we? I need that car, man. I need that. I need that house. I need to build this house on this plot of land because this is what we do in America, right? I need these things. No, this, this, no you want those things. Your needs are a lot more simpler. Jesus says to them, look at the birds. God supplies all their needs 
focus on him. It's all about Jesus. Focus on his mission. The reason why a lot of churches are dying, the reason why missionaries don't have enough, God is providing, God is supernaturally providing, right? But what if the church got this first and best concept of our generosity? We wouldn't be able to keep people in our seats here because we would be sending them so fast out there, right? That's what I want us to see. And then he says for the spenders, Jesus says, look at the wildflowers. They don't worry about not having enough money to have the latest clothes or drive the latest cars or nicest vehicles or nicest houses. And they live, they don't live in the biggest houses and, and, and look how beautifully God has clothed them. Focus on him. Focus on Christ. And then Jesus ends this discussion in verse 33. What does he say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Who does this well? Not a lot of volunteers for this one. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That means I care about discipleship. Not meeting in a coffee shop once a week. I care about doing life with someone, raising them up to be who God's created them to be. I care about church planning. I care about my community that I'm living in. I care about the nations. I care about all these things. So the question it goes back to the question, what or who gets the first and best of your time, your treasure, or your talent? Think about that this morning before you answer. What or who drives everything else in your life? Is it God or is it you? It's easy to come listen to a sermon and then walk out and then just shake it off and move on with your life and get back to your comfort zones, right? But I'm praying that God would put his presence on your life, on your family, and on your house and would not let you live the same way that you came in on this topic. I pray that we would change what comes first in your life. Is it your satisfaction in spending to get your first? Does, does saving for security get your first? Or are you probably, if you're, if you're spending to get your, if spending gets your first, well, you're probably in debt and not saving much. If saving gets your first, security gets your first, then you probably have a pretty solid 401k, but your standard of giving is probably low. Or does God come first? Does God get the first say? There's nothing wrong with spending and saving, but does investing in God and his purposes come first? God doesn't bless us. This is what I want you to hear. God doesn't bless us. God doesn't bless us with more things so that we can hoard more things. God doesn't bless us. He doesn't just bless us a little bit. Who has God blessed in this room? All of us. God doesn't bless us just a little bit. He ends up pouring us all out. In his, so what happens is we end up so we can pour out more. God doesn't bless us so that we can increase our standard of living. God blesses us so that we can increase our standard of giving. Does that make sense? So we can pour out more into what he's doing in this place. And what ends up happening is God begins to pour out all of his blessings because he's a generous God and he fills us up. And what he does is it's like, what's happening? God's blessing our church. God's blessing our missions. God's blessing our communities and our discipleship and our church plants. And we see God's plants. God's generosity is endless. 
we end up seeing everything poured out for us because he's poured out Christ and he's given us the gospel. We see we have no needs. God is a generous God. God is a wealthy God. God is a generous God that loves us so much that he gave Christ, not so that we can hoard our possessions, but so that we can give them away to see the nations reached. And there's, there's more back here too. I can probably just keep pouring, but you see what I'm saying? Do you get the point? Our heart this morning is that everybody gives their first and their best to something, but what do you give your first and your best to? My challenge for you and your family today is, is, is to begin to give your first and your best to God and to his mission and watch how he'll grow your faith and focus your attention where he's moving. If you're focusing your attention on Christ, there's not a mean area of this community that he's trying to reach that won't be unmanned. It'll be manned by you, by this church. Some of you are so focused on how we're going to clean this mess, you missed the message. A steward is someone who manages something that belongs to somebody else. Are we leveraging our resources for the kingdom of purposes? It's the only place to invest where we're going to last forever. And those who are, who are wise and realize that, and they arrange their lives accordingly. It's just common sense. T- Listen, if time on earth is short, you have 70, 80 years here, and time in heaven is long, eternity. 30 million years is just the beginning. There is no end. Shouldn't we fix our eyes on Jesus and eternity? Shouldn't that affect how we give our time? Shouldn't that affect how we give our treasure and our talent? Shouldn't that affect how we do life? Guys, he's promised these things to those who love him first. This morning, maybe you've never experienced this. This morning, just to kind of give you a uh, kind of a litmus test, the, the giving culture in our church, we have roughly 36 people that come to our church that are giving regularly. We have 46% of people in our church giving in their time and serving. We have about, you know, the same, same amount with, 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 with uh, you know, talents, with giving their talents. And so this morning, I pray that you would be able to experience God's generosity, that you would give God back what he, all, what he owns. Maybe you've never experienced this type of generosity in your life because you've never personally experienced the generosity of the gospel. Maybe you've never had that woe is me moment like we talked about a moment ago where you say, woe is me, God is good. He's blessed us through his son, Jesus. Let's get that right today. If you don't know Christ this morning, if you don't know about his death, his burial, his resurrection, his life that he wants to give you, there are people in this room that would love to pray with you. There are people in this room that would love to, to, to pray with you. And in that way, if, if you know this morning that you're saying, hey, I've never given my life to God in this way where I, I need Jesus this morning. I want to be standing here, Mary this here. There'll be other people in this room. Literally, let's get that right today so that we can live the way God has called us to live. And so all you have to do is just walk up here and say, I need Jesus this morning. If this morning you've been worshiping an idol of, of time, treasure, and talent, you've been hoarding things, controlling things, come to this altar. Let's pray. Let's, this is a place of freedom. This is a place of, of joy and celebration, not a place of shame and condemnation. I pray this morning that today will be a, a shift in how we do things in this church, that we'll buy into the mission and vision of this church to see the nation's reach, to see disciples made, to see church planters sent out, to see the love of Christ reach our community and the ends of this earth. I pray that we, this body, 
would have a big impact in that way. And God says, in, in layman's terms, God says, do this and watch what I'll do. So let me pray for us. And as I pray, you can come. God, we love you. We thank you and we praise you for all that you've done for us. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for what that means. We thank you for loving us in a way we don't deserve. I pray this morning for the people in this room that are, that are far from you, God. I pray for the person in this room that may not know you. I pray that you would just draw them to yourself, Lord. I pray that you would draw them in a way that's very real. God, I pray that it's very tangible. I pray for the person in this room that's been struggling with this concept of generosity. I pray, God, that you would open up the floodgates of heaven in their life and begin to shine the light of your freedom on their life, God, and then just open them up to, to being involved in the mission that you call this church to not just have a tender to fill a seat. God, I pray that we would be a generous church. I pray that we would be a church that gives and gives and gives until it hurts. I pray that we would have impact on this world and on this community in ways we never dreamed. And I pray that you would receive the glory from all of it. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.